0: I'll be uh, preaching tonight from the book of Acts. We'll be in verses 1 through 13. I'll begin with verse 1. I'll read the text and then I will pray for us. Beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. (laughs) But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. "...and had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, "...this man is the power of God that is called great." And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women." Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for a Sabbath rest that we could come and rest in Jesus Christ who has saved us. To rest in your word that we could hear the preaching of it this morning and be, and be blessed by Pastor uh, Greco... We pray now that you would uh, bless the preaching of your Word, and that here in Acts chapter eight, we pray all of this in christ 's name. Amen. Have you ever been discouraged by the state of the church today? Are you discouraged when you see that often the church is bruised, attacked, or even at its worst the church is persecuted? Are you the kind of person who is tired of hearing what seems to be endless accounts of persecution that we see in countries like China, Syria, Turkey, and many, many others? Perhaps you're the kind of person who is most discouraged when you think about the church here in America. A church that is often ignored, mocked, and ridiculed. After all, a growing view among many Americans is that ...the church is ancient, it's too old, it's ignorant... ...and that those in the church are foolish, they're wasting their time. Often, when we are discouraged by these realities... ...we can be tempted to wonder, what is God doing? After all, isn't the church God's bride? Doesn't he love his people? Doesn't he love his bride? Why then does God allow suffering and attacks and persecution... ...to come upon his bride... ...his church. Well, our text tonight addresses these realities of persecution. In fact, what we see here in Acts chapter 8... ...is the very first major persecution of the Christian church. And we will see several things. We will see that God is sovereign over his church. That he truly is in control. We will see that persecution is simply no match for God... ...who can work good even out of evil you can see our text tonight under three headings. First, persecution comes. Then, joy comes. And third, salvation comes. We see persecution comes, joy comes, and salvation comes. Beginning here in verse 1, Luke tells us, and Saul approved of his execution. To understand this oddly placed sentence, we need to look back at what Luke has just been recounting for us. In Acts chapter 7, we saw the stoning of Stephen. If you would, allow me to briefly recap some of the events leading up to Acts chapter 7. If you go all the way back to Acts chapter 2, you'll see several monumental events happen for the church. There you see the Holy Spirit being poured out over God's church. God, who stands in approval over this new church in Jerusalem, gives them his own Holy Spirit as a sign and a seal... ...of his blessing. We also see in Acts chapter 2... ...the preaching of the Apostle Peter... ...where many thousands of converts... uh, ...people are made converted... ...and they joined this new young church... ...in Jerusalem. If you skipped forward a couple of chapters... uh, ...Acts chapter 6, Luke tells us... ...that the growth of this Jerusalem church... ...is so great that they needed to, to... ...institute a new role... ...a leadership role to manage the growth of this church. So seven men are taken. One of them is Stephen, who is going to be stoned. One of them is Philip, who we see in our passage tonight. Seven men, full of the Holy Spirit... ...are chosen to be servants of this great new church. We might call them the very first deacons of the church. And Luke tells us the results of this in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. He says, "...and the word of God continued to increase." And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. I think if we were honest, we would look at the church at this point and we would say, this is what it looks like when God is at work. The church is growing. The gospel is spreading. There are no obstacles in its way. But inevitably, we see very soon that persecution comes. In Acts chapter 7, this newly elected deacon, Stephen, is seized ...and he is brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities... ...on um, uh, accounts of heresy... ...and accused of preaching against the law of Moses. When Stephen is given a chance to defend himself from these charges... ...he instead chooses to preach the gospel. As you can imagine, this further enrages the authorities... ...and a brief ending is cast upon Stephen. Stephen is taken outside of the city, he is cast out... ...and he is stoned to death. And we're told in that account of a particular individual named Saul. A Pharisee who stood over these proceedings... ...and stood in a a position of authority and stood in approval. And what we see here now is that Stephen's persecution... ...did not bring about the end of the persecution to the church in Jerusalem... ...but it actually served as a catalyst to a much greater persecution. Luke tells us later on in verse 1... There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And Luke goes on to describe for us what this persecution is like. He says in verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We could stop for a moment and consider this word ravage. Paul isn't simply ...trying to poke at the church a little bit... ...or hurt the church a little bit. He is trying to destroy it. To mortally wound the church. Even he would admit this. In Acts 22, verse 4... ...he himself said, I persecuted this way to the death. Paul's goal is to destroy the church at this point. Now we might think that this account seems a bit strange. After all, how is one man, Saul... ...supposed to be a threat to thousands of new believers. The odds don't seem to be in his favor. It would be helpful for us to know just who Saul is... ...in order to understand why he posed such a threat to these new believers. Saul was a well-known, high-ranking Pharisee. He was someone that you would describe as having incredible intelligence. He is a powerful man... And he is zealous for Judaism. He is zealous for the law. He is zealous for the Old Testament. Saul, at this time, views Christianity as a corrupted version of Judaism, which he is so um, zealous for. And he views it as a dangerous religion that needed to be destroyed. Perhaps what is most terrifying about Saul is that he really isn't acting alone. Saul, at this point, is under the full authority of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He has lawful authority to be doing the things that he is doing. Imagine what it is like for these believers to have an enemy like Saul, who is powerful, who is smart, who is zealous to destroy you and your faith, and who has lawful, lawful authority to be doing the things that he does. Imagine being fearful like these believers, fearful of imprisonment, fearful of having your family beaten, your family perhaps even killed, and knowing that Saul all the while has authority to be doing the things that he's doing. Saul at this point is truly a great menace to Christianity. Well, Luke goes on and he tells us the results of this persecution. He says in verse 1 later on, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here you have the church, in fear of destruction, in fear for their lives of imprisonment and beating, fleeing, scattering to the surrounding regions, so much so that only the apostles are left. We could stop right now and ask ourselves, why would God do this? Why would God allow a menace, someone as terrible as Saul, to persecute his his growing church, to ruin all of the good work that has been taking place since Acts chapter two? In our text, we see several competing interests. On the one hand, you have Saul, whose sole motivation is to wipe out Christianity, to destroy it. On the other hand, you have the motivation of Christians; they simply want to get out of town. They're fearful for their lives. But we need to stop at this moment and ask ourselves, what is God's motivation in this? What is God hoping to accomplish out of this? What is God planning on doing through the persecution of Saul upon his new young church? What we will see is that God not only responds to this great evil with good. He actually uses these evil events to accomplish his good purposes. The first good purpose that he accomplishes is that joy is brought to the neighboring region of Samaria. Persecution has now come, but second, joy comes. As we see Philip and these other believers come to Samaria. It will help us also to stop and consider just who these Samaritans are. If you recall Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Usually people refer to this verse as the most important verse or the key verse in all of Acts. There in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here we have Christ promising his church how the church would grow. It would begin in Jerusalem, it would go to the surrounding regions of Judea, then it would come to Samaria, and then it would go ...to um, the, sur- the surrounding nations... ...or as you might call the Gentiles. And what we see here is a partial fulfillment of that promise. The gospel, God's people... ...had officially been brought into Samaria... ...for the very first time. And this verse, Acts 1-8... ...clues us in on just who the Samaritans are. They're not really Jews... ...they're not Jerusalem and Judea... ...but they're also not like the nations of the world they are really to be understood as something in between. In fact, the Jews and the Samaritans have a long history of hatred and rivalry for one another, going back something like the last thousand years. From a Jewish perspective, the Samaritan religion was corrupt. It was Judaism, but corrupted. You might understand it kind of like this. If you were to take Christianity and compare it to a religion like Hinduism you'd see at the offset that nothing at all is very similar about these. They don't use the same religious text. They don't worship the same God. They don't even worship the same amount of gods. There's nothing at all that is similar between these two religions. And yet, if you compared Christianity with something like Mormonism, you would see from the start that there seems to be a lot of similarities. They worship the same God. They preach and talk about the same Bible. Even some of their religious practices are similar. And yet, from the Christian viewpoint, Mormonism is the Bible plus. It is Mormonism, but other doctrines, other teachings uh, have been added onto to it. So much so that we would say they've corrupted it. They've changed the word of God. Um, this is... Some Kind of like how the Jews viewed the Samaritans. They viewed them as corruptors of God's word. But instead of the Samaritans having added on to the word of God, they had uh, subtracted from it. The Samaritans were notorious for having taken the whole Old Testament and chopping so much of it that they only were left with the very first five books of the Bible. And for doing this, the Jews hated them. The Jews despised them for corrupting God's word in this way. In fact, the Jews often referred to them as half-breeds, as dogs, as unclean. Add on top of this the fact that the Jews were generally considered to be the righteous people, keepers of God's law, law keepers, whereas the Samaritans were particularly lo- known for their sin, particularly known for uh, breaking the law. I think... ...the Apostle John perhaps puts it best... ...when he describes the relationship that the Jews have with the Samaritans... ...in John 4, verse 9. He says, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So why then do Philip and these other believers come to Samaria of all places? They're historic enemies. Well, Luke does not tell us why they come there specifically... Perhaps they go to Samaria because it was the closest and the safest place for them to get to. After all, Samaria is not very far north of Jerusalem. Perhaps they were even thinking about Christ's words back in Acts 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. And they were remembering that the gospel had to come to Samaria at some point, and maybe they were going to Samaria out of obedience. Whatever the reason that Philip and these other believers choose to come to Samaria, Luke does not tell us but he tells us what they do when they get there. He tells us in verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So here we have Philip and these other believers who are now homeless. They are wandering. They are persecuted. And now they are in enemy territory. And they are preaching the gospel. They are interacting with the Samaritans. You might think that these fleeing Christians would have as their number one plan to stay low in Samaria. That they would want to, above all things, not make a big scene. Not make a big fuss. Not draw attention to themselves amongst their enemies. And especially stay away from the Samaritans. But instead we see the exact opposite taking place. We see Philip and these other Christians interacting greatly with the Samaritan people. Making a big scene while preaching the gospel. Far from being hidden away in some cave or hidden away off off in the countryside. Philip and these Christians are in the cities. They are in the streets and they are in the marketplaces. They are there with the people. Instead of laying low, Philip is drawing large crowds to himself. Luke comments on this when he says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to him. And later on in verse 7 saying, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So here we have Philip. Far from laying low, uh, staying hidden. He is performing miraculous signs. So much that screaming demons are coming out. He's performing these miraculous signs and miracles... ...and interacting with the Samaritan people. We might think that this scene... ...seems very familiar to us. It bears many similarities to... ...the Gospels... ...where we see Jesus ministering to people there. There we see Jesus unafraid to associate with... ...so-called unclean people. There we see Jesus reaching out to those who are lame... ...those who are poor... ...those who are outcasted... ...and even... Great sinners. What we see in our text tonight are Philip and these other believers... ...modeling the example of their Lord Jesus Christ... ...who himself said he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. Philip and these other Christians are serving the Samaritans. They are bearing to them and showing them the love of Christ. Luke goes on and he tells us how the Samaritans respond... ...to all of this service and these great miracles... ...that these Christians are performing among them. In verse 6, he says... ...and the crowds with one accord... ...paid attention to what was being said by Philip... ...when they heard him... ...and they saw the signs that he did. In other words, the people of Samaria can't help... ...but to take notice of what these Christians are doing. Luke goes on and tells us more of their response. He says in verse 7 through 8... ...for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. These Christians, these persecuted and fleeing Christians... had now become great blessings to the people of Samaria... even bringing them much joy. Perhaps we could stop and consider our own lives for just a moment. Do we promote the love of Christ... ...to others around us... ...bringing joy and service and care to them. Are we joy bringers? Perhaps are we joy bringers... ...to those who are in our families... ...in our our neighborhoods... ...in our communities... ...to our co-workers and those closest to us? Or perhaps are we joy bringers... ...to people that we would otherwise... ...have very little in common with... ...as the Jews did with the Samaritans... ...people who would say... ...you're my greatest enemy people who act differently than us, who look differently than us, who think differently than us, who in every way live lives that are very different from us. Are we bringing joy to these kinds of people? In our text, we see these persecuted, wandering, homeless Christians bearing the love of Christ, serving the Samaritans, and simply bringing joy wherever they go. Well, we've seen that persecution has come then we saw that joy has come. But now we will see a much greater result than even this great joy. We will see that salvation comes to Samaria. Saul, who intended who intended to snuff out Christianity at the beginning of our passage, instead is seeing Christianity spread like wildfire. Luke tells us that when Philip and these other believers come among the Samaritans... They not only perform great miracles, they do not simply serve them, but they preach to them the gospel. They tell them about Jesus. And by God's grace, this message found a listening audience among the Samaritans. Luke goes on and he tells us the results of all of their preaching in verse 12. He says in verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Both men and women. The gospel at this point had officially broken into Samaria. Acts 1, chapter 8, 1 verse 8 was now one step closer to being fulfilled. People who had long been considered enemies of God's people... ...were at this point united to Christ by faith. They were now members of the church. It would help us if we stopped and considered... ...the order of events that we've seen so far... We've seen Philip and these believers come... ...under trying circumstances... ...fleeing from Saul... ...fleeing from persecution. We've seen them among the Samaritans... ...performing great miracles... ...bringing great joy wherever they went. But here we see that the joy that they brought... ...was not an end in and of itself... ...but rather that joy served a greater purpose... ...that it provided Philip and these other Christians... ...opportunities to preach to them the gospel. In other words... The reason that Philip came and worked these miracles among them, what was uh, motivating him to do this was not to make money, to get a quick buck out of these Samaritans. He was not there to make a great name for himself by his miracles. No, he was doing these great miracles. He was serving them because he wanted to preach to them, he wanted to tell them the gospel. After all, this checks up with what Luke said back in verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So the Samaritans are listening to Philip. Why? Because they saw what he has done among them. They saw the kind of person that he was. There is an important principle that I think we can see here. And this principle is this. That we as messengers cannot be... ...divided from the message that we preach. In other words, people around us do see what kind of people we are. They do take notice of that. And it does affect whether or not they want to listen to us. And so there's an application for us from this principle that we see. Do we wish that we had more opportunities to preach the gospel... ...as Pastor Greco has been encouraging us? Do we wish that we had more opportunities to tell people... ...about our greatest hope, our greatest joy... ...about how we've been saved by Christ. I think that we all would agree to that. But I often think that we simply don't know where to start. If that describes you today... ...ask yourself this question. Who are you serving? What we see is that serving provides opportunities... ...to preaching the gospel. So what opportunities do you have to serve your family members? To serve those who are uh, close to you... ...whom God has placed close to your life... What opportunities do we have to bless our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors and our communities? What we see is that this service opens up actual opportunities to preaching the gospel, to speaking real words about the hope that lies within us. Not only does it open up more opportunities to preach the gospel, but it actually makes our witness more credible. I think this is uh, perfectly natural to us. We, If you could imagine... Um, listening to Would you rather listen to someone who is a complete stranger to you... ...or would you be more likely to listen to someone who has served you... ...has cared for you, has reached out to you and shown you the love of Christ? Of course, we would all say that we are more likely to listen to the one who cares for us. And so we see that through service, we open up these opportunities to preach to people... ...to tell them about Jesus that we love... What we see here is that Christian service has a goal. It is not an end in itself. And that goal of Christian service is witnessing to speaking actual words about Jesus. Well, in the midst of this great salvation that is brought to Samaria, Luke begins to tell us an account of a man named Simon. This account of Simon begins here in our text, but it really continues on through the rest of chapter 8. And what we see in Simon is a brief warning for us. A warning about the nature of false faith. Let me explain. Prior to Philip coming, all of the people of Samaria had been long captivated by this magician named Simon. Luke tells us in verse 9, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was great. "...they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest... ...saying, this man is the power of God that is called great." So we can see several things about who Simon is from this. We see that he's powerful. He's a magic user. We also know that he is likely very wealthy from his magic. Simon is also a boastful individual, often bragging... uh, ...going around telling how great he is, that he is uh, the power of God... ...claiming to be divine. Before Philip came to Samaria... ...Simon was where all of the focus was at. He was where all of the attention was at. Simon was the talk of the town. It is interesting. There's many myths and there's many stories... ...and there's many legends... ...surrounding this figure named Simon. uh, All coming... ...many coming from outside of the Bible... ...outside of our text here tonight. Um, Many of the church fathers referred to this man, Simon... ...as the father of all heresies... Uh, or calling him the father of Gnosticism. Uh, There's even one particularly interesting legend told about this man, that at some point he would have a magical duel with the Apostle Peter, and as you can imagine, he loses that duel. Nevertheless, we know for certain only what we're told here in Luke. Although there's many myths around him, we can be certain about what Luke tells us about him. And Luke begins to tell us something very, very interesting that happens with this individual, Simon. He says in verse 13, Even Simon believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. If the story ended at this point, we would not have anything else to say about Simon, except that he was a previous magic user who repented and came to Christ and joined the church. But sadly, this account does go on past our text tonight. Uh, I can briefly describe for you what happens in the rest of of this chapter. Uh, Simon would go on after this point to attempt to bribe the apostle Peter. He would attempt to give him money uh, in order to receive the power of blessing people with the Holy Spirit. And Peter's response to him is biting and harsh. Peter says to him in verses 20 and 21, saying, May your silver perish with you, because you thought... ...you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter... ...for your heart is not right before God. So we see that Simon would very soon reveal his true intention. He would very soon reveal his real motivation for joining the church. He did not join the church out of his need for Christ... ...out of his guilt of sin... ...and knowing that Christ alone could save him. No, he joined the church. He professed faith so that he could gain more power... He saw in Christianity a means as of adding to himself supernatural abilities. Adding to uh, himself another trick for his magic show. Simon reveals that he is a false believer. So right in the midst of this great salvation of Samaria, we have a very ugly story about Simon. What we see is that the church simply will have messiness in it. It will often be full of problems. It can be at times filled with unrepentant sin, boastfulness, or even false believers. But here is what we can know from this. That God is at work even through the messiness of this situation in Samaria. He's at work even through the messiness of our churches. So do not let the bad news of Simon take your eyes off of the great work that God is doing here in Samaria. Though Simon is a great warning for us about false faith, we still see a great salvation taking place in Samaria. In this text tonight, we see a wonderful irony. That what began as Saul's attempt to destroy Christianity only led to joy and to salvation being brought to neighboring Samaria, the enemies of God's people. We see that God used Saul's evil deeds and accomplished good out of them. Perhaps there is even another irony beginning tonight in our passage. We know that God is not done even with this wicked individual Saul. We know that right now Saul is Christianity's greatest enemy. But we also know that soon, later in Acts, the Apostle Paul... ...would be converted on the Damascus Road... ...that he would encounter Jesus Christ... ...and in glorious fashion be converted... ...by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. Saul would go on to become the Apostle Paul... um, ...apostle to the Gentiles. He would go on to become one of Christianity's... ...greatest defenders, greatest evangelizers. These are the kinds of works of a great God... This is the kind of work of a God who works good out of evil. In conclusion, if by all earthly standards, when we look at the church today, and it seems to be losing, and when we look at the church, more often than not, it seems to be retreating, not gaining ground. Let us not be tempted to think that God has abandoned us. Let us not be tempted to think that God has forgotten about his church. It's passages like this that remind us ...that God is in fact in control of his church... ...and that Jesus Christ is Lord of his church. The Apostle Paul would go on to describe describe for us... ...who this Jesus Christ is. Bear with me as I read from Colossians 1, 16-18... ...as Paul describes for us just who this Lord Jesus Christ is. He says, For by him all things were created... ...in heaven and on earth... ...visible and invisible... Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. The church. Paul is telling us right here that Jesus Christ who is exalted. Who is high. Who is mighty. And who stands with all authority. He is the head of this church. He is the head of God's people. It is the very same Jesus Christ who promised to his disciples in Matthew 28:20 20, saying to them and to us and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray.